Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. in 22 there's a lot of there's a lot of teaching out there you know that we have a lot of teaching available to us and probably uh, more accessible now than ever Jesus warned um, Jesus warned us that there would be many who would come proclaiming Christ and be careful not to go out after them and so I was, I was thinking about this a little bit that how we have access to a lot of different teaching in the old days it used to be that you had to you had to know somebody, um, either you knew the who their teacher was directly or you knew somebody that knew them, and so it, it could spread that way. And then um, with the printing press and literacy, you could read about ideas, and then came the radio when you could listen to them, and uh, then the television where you could hear ideas and uh, hear what, what a preacher or a teacher was saying, and then came the... Then came the internet, right? And now you can choose your format if you want to listen, if you want to see, if you want to read. You can uh, find all of that in one place. And um, you have available to you in any format for your consumption. And I think we would all admit, I mean, tonight we're we're doing teaching over the internet. I don't know if you knew that or not. We're part of the World Wide Web, and people can tune in, and we've looked at uh, where we've gotten people tune in from, and sometimes from India and the Far East and sometimes inside the 1040 window, which is a predominantly Muslim area. There are people who've tuned in and watched what's going on. And so there's some good things that are out there. And, and uh, I don't have to tell you that the Internet also has some, some bad ideas on it that uh, we, have to be, we have to be careful of. And uh, ideas have consequences. And I, I want to point that out because I think Sometimes we think in, in terms of ideas or, or teaching or schooling that it's not very practical. Like, uh, it really doesn't matter what we learn. It matters what we do, and um, it does matter what we do, but it also matters what we learn. And ideas, ideas have consequences, and they're not powerless. If you think ideas are powerless, then visit Auschwitz or the killing fields of Cambodia, and you'll find out that ideas have consequences and uh, you can see the results of those ideas, how they've taken to immoral extremes, both on the right and on the left. And this is just an example, of course, to show that there are ditches on both sides of the road. And Jesus faced that same kind of thing, that there are ditches on both sides of the road. And so he spoke to his disciples, um, and he, he himself faced and warned his disciples against these ideas. And, and one of a, I think, a kind of humorous story here, and Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus has just uh, fed the multitudes by multiplying the bread and the fish, right? And, and so then they get into a boat, and they're going to the other side, and, and he brings up a different topic of conversation, but he uses something that's related to, to what's just happened. He says in Matthew 16, 5, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take the bread, and Jesus said, be careful 
to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Uh, Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking to yourselves about having no bread? Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves uh, for the 5,000 and how many baskets full you gather? The seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets full you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking about the bread? So they're in the boat. They're traveling. He mentions yeast. They make the connection in their mind. He's talking about the bread. We forgot to bring the bread. What are we going to do without the bread? So suddenly their whole focus has shifted away from what he's talking about. And he says, no, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then it says in verse 12 there, and then they understood that he was telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, not against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is kind of an interesting thing here. I want to title this tonight, The Wisdom of the Anointed. We have a, we have a wise Savior. Would you, would you agree with that from your practical experience that you found Jesus to be wise, not only for distinguishing between options, but also for guiding us in our lives? He's wise to do that. And so um, he says, be on your guard against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just a, a little bit about the Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees. Um, they presented a challenge to Jesus from two different sides. So um, not, he didn't just have to face one particular aspect of Judaism, but he had, to, he had to deal not only with them, but there was another uh, sect that came along uh, called the Zealots. They were probably a subsect of the, of the Pharisees, but... Um, and then we don't hear about the Essenes other than maybe there's some allusions to it with John the Baptist. So there's kind of four different uh, categories of, of um, Israelite who is prominent in the day. And then there are probably some that don't fall into a nice neat category. But the two that uh, persistently pestered Jesus were Pharisees and Sadducees. And these were religious leaders. And uh, you probably would group, although... Sometimes a distinction is made, but sometimes you probably group the scribes in with the Pharisees, that they're, they're along the same kinds of lines. But they, they presented uh, a challenge to Jesus from two different sides. Uh, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew 22, where we'll look at the rest of our, our um, verses for tonight. Matthew 22. And they were wanting to see if they could... Uh, trap Jesus in his words, if they could, then he would lose um, he would lose face or lose some kind of authority with the people that he was popular with. Somebody come turn my page. I can't seem to do it. I got it. Uh, it is a miracle. Christmas miracle. Yep. But they were looking to see if they could trap uh, Jesus in his words, and if they could, they would he would lose popularity with people. And so they presented a challenge before him. But how, how Jesus knew the scriptures and uh, he knew uh, what was in the hearts of people, he could answer them from that. He knew how to answer them as a response to that. And I find in that a challenge to us. We're, we're not Jesus, but we do have the spirit of God living in us. And we can study the scriptures and we can rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us wisdom in moments of need so that we can answer things like this. But uh, he knew the scriptures and he knew the power of God and he had experienced uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I, have a, I can't prove this, but 
Uh, I think there are scriptures that allude to it, that Jesus in his humanity, it seems to me, relied upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do his miraculous work. That's how I understand it. He didn't just do it from his uh, divine nature, but I think in some ways he laid aside those prerogatives and dwelt with the help of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. And uh, that's a personal opinion. I'm not hard and fast. I'm not ready to die on that hill. But I think that that's probably what it's alluding to when it says Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, went about doing good and, and uh, curing all who were afflicted by the devil, for the Lord was with him. So I think that that's the case. But so if that's the case, then in doing these things and confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees, it would seem to me that he's relying upon the same Holy Spirit that we rely upon okay, in our time of need when we're when we're dealing with a lot of the uh, different ideas that are out there floating around. And he knew how to avoid the ditches on both sides of the road. And that, I think, is to his credit, and we need that same wisdom in uh, addressing the issues uh, that we face today. Jesus himself uh, faced that challenge with, with God's wisdom, with God's wisdom. Um, some things about uh, the challenges First of all, uh, there's a lot that happened between Malachi and Matthew. So we're, we're here in Matthew, and we're dealing with the ministry of Jesus. Um, there's a lot that happened between the time of Jesus, uh, God's people coming back from exile and going into that intertestamental period that's kind of dark, but we have a little bit of knowledge of um, between the Testaments. Okay? There's a lot that developed. And one of the things that developed there is these two groups of Jews known as the Pharisees and Sadducees that that their prominence comes out of the intertestamental period. So if you're wondering why you haven't read about Pharisees and Sadducees in the Old Testament, it's because they weren't quite the group that they were by the time Jesus comes along. It develops as a result of coming out of exile and back into the land and facing challenges from the Greeks and then the Romans. They, they kind of built up categories in which they found themselves a little bit stronger even though they were an oppressed people. So you have Pharisees and Sadducees. These two groups grew up during that time, each in a different section of society. So Pharisees, let's talk about this just for a minute. We don't have time. We could spend, we could spend a month going through and talking about Pharisees. We could. There's enough about them to do that. But let's just uh, look at a kind of a thumbnail sketch here of that. Pharisees, they're not exactly sure where this word comes from, but the best guess they have is that it means separated ones, ones who want to separate themselves from the evil that's around them, the evil in culture. They want to they do the right thing, and so they're following to the T um, everything that the law says, best that they can interpret it, although Jesus is going to call them on some stuff, isn't he? And so separated ones, they believed in the Tanakh. I'm I'm going to ask you, what is Tanakh? Anybody know? It's the Old Testament. The Tanakh is the law, the prophets, and the writing. Each of those letters represent a different portion of the Old Testament. Okay, so, so keep that in mind. They believe in the Old Testament we believe in, okay, the Pharisees did. They believe in um, the books of Moses, the, um, all that came historically, and the prophets that came and and uh, applied the law to Israel through its history. So they believed in that. They also believed in the supernatural, which means that they believed in angels and demons and miracles and the afterlife. Okay, So we can kind of get on board with that. Like when Paul 
is confronted by the Sanhedrin. He sides himself with the Pharisees and says, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, he's a converted Pharisee, so something's a little different than him. But what he's saying essentially is that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in angels and demons. I believe in the afterlife. I believe in miracles, things like that. Okay. The other thing you should know about the Pharisees is that of all the, um, the groupings within Judaism, the Pharisees were the most numerous. So this is, this is, there's a lot of people who are Pharisees. Okay. Uh, many, many people who are Pharisees. And so they're among the most numerous, and they tend to be more patriotic, but they're less um, revolutionary than the zealots are. The zealots are ready to kill the Romans and get them out. The Pharisees, they will compromise a little bit in order to keep the peace, but they don't like it. They don't like the fact that the Romans are there, and they're going to stand for what they think is right in the law. There's something heroic a little bit about Pharisee. Not every Pharisee was bad. But Jesus seemed to have their number because they were basing their righteousness on the wrong kinds of things. All right? So the Pharisees. And then there was another group, and they're the Sadducees, right? And we always heard growing up, they're Sadducees because they don't believe in the, the resurrection. Anybody sing that song? Uh, there was a song about that. Uh, and I'm not going to sing it because I can't remember it. Sadducees, if you look at uh, the scriptures here, see where, if we can find a place where it says Sadducees within this. Chapter 22, um, I think right around 23, the Sadducees, can you see that? 22, chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 23, Sadducees. If you would just imagine in your mind that that S is a Z and that the C is a K, you can see that these are descendants of Zadok. Zadok, they're Zadokites. That's what Sadducee means. They're, they're far less numerous because they're actually a priestly order. They they find their heritage goes back to the high priest Zadok. And so they claim that. They have positions of power. They've been put in positions of power. I think probably some of them were not actual Zadokites, but, but they're put in that position by appointment, some of them. And many of them, they don't know the scriptures. We have some intertestamental history writings that suggest that they had to learn which animals were pure and impure from the Pharisees. The Pharisees had to come tell them. They put a parade of animals in front of them. That one's unpure, impure. That one's pure. You can sacrifice that one. So they're kind of, they were at one time kind of ignorant of some of those things, but that's probably not true of all of them. That was probably more said in jest. Uh, they believed in the Torah. What is, what is that? Yeah, the first five books. So they believed in the first five books. What's the, how does that make them different from the Pharisees? <laughs> they don't believe in a lot of the Old Testament. They think that maybe that are, they're good writings, like we would view the Apocrypha. Uh, we think there's good history there, but it's not Scripture. Okay? So that's how they kind of viewed that, is there might be some good things there, but you can't really claim that as a revelation from God. We've got to stay narrow. It's only Moses that has revealed Israel's religion to us. They were anti-supernatural in their outlook. Um, they didn't believe in angels or demons or miracles or the afterlife. They were a select few. So if you look at the Pharisees, they're numerous. The Sadducees are not numerous. There's few of them, but they tend to be in powerful positions. Can you think of any Sadducees you know of by name? About Annas, the high priest, about Caiaphas, 
These guys were Sadducees. They're, they're in the priestly order. So those are a couple guys at least that you would know of that were Sadducees. And they tended to collaborate with Rome and had a lot of power. They, uh, Annas, he was probably the one responsible for the, the marketplace in the temple. And uh, he also had a lot of power in terms of if he wanted, if he wanted somebody to get killed, he could see it accomplished. And in fact, uh, he used that political sway against Jesus. And probably uh, he doesn't want Jesus to come to power because it's a threat to his power. Okay, Pharisees probably in another way. But the Sadducees, it's like they're going to get removed from their place of prominence if Jesus comes to power. And so they're nervous about that. And uh, they were in cahoots with Rome. A lot of them had power because of political appointment. Um, some things about the challenge, because they're going to challenge Jesus. We're going to read this challenge that they offer to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both from a different perspective. Let me mention this, too. I didn't say it here, but the Pharisees and Sadducees largely couldn't stand each other. They did not like each other because they disagreed so much on the fundamentals. Like, if you don't believe in the resurrection and somebody else does believe in the resurrection, you get them butt heads, okay? Sadducees weren't... Um, you know, law keepers to the, down to the letter, Pharisees were. And so they're going to butt heads on a lot of things. So they didn't like each other. But when it came to Jesus, they actually um, came together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know. So they were together. And you find that the Sanhedrin, what's the Sanhedrin? Anybody know what a good equivalent to that would be in our, in our government? Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of Israel. Now they don't have quite the power because they're still subject to, to Roman, um, the Roman overlords. But they still have some power, and you find that the majority of the Sanhedrin is Pharisee, but there's some Sadducees. So when Paul stands before them, he gets them. Uh, he says something that ignites them against each other, and they forget about him. Well, they're united against Jesus. So they come against Jesus with different things. It's almost like these two schools are challenging one another and trying to knock Jesus off of his, his pedestal or knock Jesus out of prominence. And so um, they offer some arguments. Let me mention a couple things about this before we dive into the details of it. The first thing is this, is that these things that were said, um, these questions that they're going to ask are carefully reasoned questions to reinforce existing beliefs, okay? So, do you know what I mean? That they're not questions to get answers. They're questions to reinforce what somebody already believes. So, they're going to ask Jesus a question, but what they want is for him to answer a particular way, right? Okay. The second thing that we should know is related to that. They were not to discover the truth, but to discredit Jesus. That's the point of these questions is that they're aimed to discredit Jesus. So, Let's look at these challenges that come in verse 15 through 22. It's, I'm going to call challenge one, the Pharisees. Challenge one, the Pharisees, 15 through 22. Look at, look at that with me where it says, Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples saying to him, uh, uh, along with the Herodians, Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity. That's a kind of. It's kind of saccharine, isn't it? Like It's sweet, but it's not real, right? Like they're not trying to say this because they really believe it. They're buttering him up a little bit. 
and say to him, um, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? You hear that question? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What's the problem with that? Right, paying taxes to Caesar. Anybody have any idea? I mean, there's lots of them. I can't think of just one, but anybody think of any reason why not to pay taxes to Caesar? They hate him. They don't want him there. Any other reasons? How about the taxes were exorbitant? They didn't charge a fair amount for them. And what, you know, when we, I don't want to get into political discussion here. <laughs> I'm kidding. And you might not be mad at me. You just might be mad at the system. But um, a lot of times when you pay tax, you expect something in return, right? Like a government that will help you. And that was not going to happen with Rome. Um, then in addition, um, there were people, especially among the zealots, who thought, how can you pay taxes to a godless man? Okay, That's like admitting that... This is not God's land, but this land belongs to the Romans. That's how some people viewed it. And so the people who framed this question knew all of that, how difficult this question was. This is fraught with political uh, peril because if you answer one way, you make enemies of one people or group, and if you answer the other way, you make enemies of the other group. And it's not that Jesus is concerned about making enemies. He's, he's obviously made enemies of both Pharisees and Sadducees, so that's not the issue. And and they admitted right here that you're not a man pleaser, okay? So they bring this uh, question to Jesus, and Jesus, knowing their evil intent, okay? So he knows, he can see through it, he knows what's going on here, he knows the purpose of the question. Um, he asked them to bring him a coin, okay? So the difficulty is that in this question is that it can divide between anti-Rome and the Rome appeasers, okay? And and there are people that are kind of on the political spectrum a little bit that are not part of these two extreme categories that it would affect them, like might, maybe it would push them away from Jesus. And so he's he answers this in a very wise way. He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax, and uh, they brought a coin to him, a denarii. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what's God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. Whenever they leave like this, it shows they've got nothing else to say. Do you remember when the woman is caught in adultery and the people come to challenge Jesus in this, and he's writing something in the dirt, and they say, uh, they bring their charge, and he says, let him that's without sin cast the first stone. And then it says this, from the oldest to the youngest, they went away. Okay? And what that means is that in the oldest, what you need to know is that they get the first opportunity to speak. They went away, and then all the way down to the youngest. So in proper speaking order, nobody had a rebuttal. So whenever, whenever you see him going away like this, uh, Jesus has baffled them with his wisdom. 
They don't know how to respond to it. Now, what Jesus' answer shows is that the issue is not about money, but it's about allegiance to God. What he wants is real heart obedience to him. He wants them. He doesn't want just their money. Okay? Give the thing that has Caesar's image on it to Caesar and give to God that which has God's image on it, yourself. Okay? So he's challenging them to do that very thing. So the issue is not about money, but it's about allegiance. And he, he wisely sidesteps the issue and shows the issue is not about what they think it's about. It's not about political allegiance. There's an allegiance that's higher than that. It's about allegiance to God. So challenge one, verses 15 through 22. Challenge two is the Sadducees. And they're, they're coming with their own challenge. Look at verse 22 and following. So Jesus knows their heart. They heard this. They went away. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, it's telling us something about them, came to him with a question. So they have a question, too. It's not enough that he has to combat these ideas on one side. Now he has to combat the ideas on the other side. How do you do that? You do it with, with wisdom. And so they come with their own question, and the question is essentially this, whose wife will she be of the seven? So let's, let's read. Uh, that same day, the Sadducees came to him and asked the question, Teacher, they said, Moses tells us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up an offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother, and the same thing happened to the second, the third, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. And now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? This is a pretty clever question, if you're trying to prove a point, if you've got the right uh, assumptions in place, but they don't. So they've asked this question based on Leverite law from the Old Testament, where uh, the concern, especially in the Old Testament, was about raising up, raising up offspring. Because what was, the, what was the goal of the people of God? If we were to narrow it down, the purpose of the people of God in the Old Testament, what was that purpose? Anybody know? Be fruitful and multiply. And it was heading towards something, wasn't it? What was it headed towards? The Messiah, remember? The whole conversation going back to Eve is about seed, a seed. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And so there are very strict laws regarding that in order to protect legacy and lineage in order to produce so that the Messiah could ultimately come about. And so one of the things that happened, and this also led, interestingly enough, I hadn't thought of this till just now, but this also, the same law is what led to the um, offspring of Judah. Remember Judah had a child with his daughter-in-law, and that became like the next step in the lineage of Jesus after Judah. And so these things kind of correlate. So they bring this idea, and they're thinking, well, this makes the whole concept of resurrection seem ridiculous. And that's the difficulty. If you answer this wrong, Jesus isn't going to, of course, but um, I'm saying if a person answers this wrong, it makes resurrection seem ridiculous. And so how does Jesus answer? It says in verse 29, Jesus replied, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, 
but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he says, you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. I think he probably here is referring not specifically to the details of the resurrection, but the fact that there is a resurrection. So he's, he's confronting them on that, and I think he closes with providing information that will educate them. Okay, so I'll come back to that in just a second. But he says that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Let's be very careful with this, okay? We're not going to be angels. Do you know that? That's not what this verse says. It doesn't say we'll be angels, does it? It says we'll be what? Like in some facet, like the angels in heaven. And neither married nor given in marriage does not suggest you will be distant from your spouse, but it will suggest in the love of God that we'll all be a lot closer than we are right now. So I don't want us to get any ideas that, oh, we're going to have to reintroduce ourselves to everybody and get to know people fresh. I don't think that's the case. I think you'll know people in heaven. And I think that relationship with the capacity of sin removed will be much closer and more intimate when God has different purposes for us than reproduction in the coming world. And so I would suggest in that that we not try to read too much into this. The point of this is that their question turns out to be ridiculous and not Jesus' answer. And he works through all of this showing that there is resurrection. I wanted to point out the fact that when he quotes uh, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, he's talking about how God is the God of the living. And this is shown and here's the interesting thing. You have to pay close attention to this. Where is he quoting from? Anybody want to take a guess? This is the Sadducees. Where is he quoting from? Where is Jesus quoting from, do you think? You probably can find it in the cross-reference section of your Bible. It's, it's the books of Moses for sure. And not only that, but it's Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, when God appears to Moses and said, I'm the God of of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he uses present tense verb, which suggests, I am the God of these who are living. And he quotes right out of the scripture section that they find authoritative. He doesn't go to Jeremiah, although he could have. He goes to the five books of Moses, where the Sadducees base all of their theology. And he answers them right where they are. Isn't that cool? Like it's something we don't usually think about or recognize, but that's where he's quoting from is, from their scriptures. It's just all, there's a bunch of little things like this throughout the New Testament that show, uh, confirm, I should say, its legitimacy. So the issue here is that he's the God of the living. Well, they can't really respond to that. The crowds, it says, when the crowds heard this, <laughs> they were astonished at his teaching. Um, astonished, we did a word study on this when we were going through Mark, and we found out that astonished means out of their mind beside themselves at Jesus, at his authority. He commands teaching with this kind of authority. So they were amazed by it. Challenge one, Pharisees, challenge met. Challenge two, Sadducees, challenge met. Challenge three, listen to this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Isn't that funny? Okay, he got them. We're going to give it another shot. We're going to catch Jesus. Like We're better than the Sadducees. We're Pharisees after all. We're going to catch him in something. And so they got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. If you're reading Mark, you'll find them shrink there. Why Matthew doesn't include that, I don't know. But his, the point of it is not to divide the faculties, but to say, essentially, that we're to love him with all of our faculties. So every part of you, it's, it's like the 70 times 7. We don't, have to, we don't have to enumerate to 490. We know the point is not 490. The point is keep forgiving. Okay? Here the point is not that we divide it into all these sections. Though I think there is some value in understanding he wants us to love him with our minds and with our heart. The point is with all of ourselves we're to love him. So Jesus makes this point here. Uh, you're to love him with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay? So now the question is, from the Pharisees, they have another question. They're concerned about law. They want to they know what Jesus has to say about law. If he says the wrong thing about law, all the Pharisees who are potentially following him, and there's a couple of them, right? they're going to go another way. You know, Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's a follower of Jesus. If uh, Jesus were somehow to say the wrong thing here, some people could be offended at this. And uh, so the question is, what's the greatest commandment? And the difficulty is, choosing a law of any other kind would be further reason to criticize him. So he could choose the wrong kind of law that nobody says, well, that's not as important as this one. Jesus isn't wise after all. So what does he do? He goes for the highest law of all. And the answer is, love God with all of your faculties and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Um, this law in particular is important because this is something that every uh, faithful Jew would have done every day. They would have said this in morning, I think some at noon, and certainly at night. And it's called the Shema. You've heard that? The Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? And... You're to teach these laws that I give you to your children. You talk about them when you walk by the way, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you come in, when you go out, all of those things. Every This is the creed of Israel, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's their creed. It's what they understood to be the highest law. I don't know if anybody would have thought that. They might have thought of the, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is similar to it. It's associated with it, but it's not quite this, right? There's a similarity to it. They might have thought the second commandment or the third, but no. He says this one encapsulates all of them. And the answer is love with all your faculties. And the issue is all law comes here not from prohibition but from prescription. You know the difference? That prohibition is what you shouldn't do. Okay, But notice that Jesus says the greatest law is what we should do. Do you see the difference? That's significant. And that's the same way with the, the golden rule, is that we're uh, to do unto others what we would want done to us. That's a positive prescription. That's not the negative. All of the world's religions, or many of them, have the negative form of the golden rule. Don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done to you. That's in the negative form. The positive form, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that it's what we shouldn't do. Okay? But what Jesus taught takes it to the next level. Think about what you would have done for you. And do that for others.
others. He puts it on the positive. He prescribes, and he prescribes here, love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It flows from that. These, this is the first and greatest commandment. It's prescription that if you love him, then all of the other, the law and the prophets will hang on that because it's the outworking of that. It doesn't, it doesn't do away with details within law-keeping. What it does is it reforms it as an interpretive framework for how do I fulfill that and what's the purpose behind it. We don't steal because we love our neighbor and we want what's in their best interest. And to take from them is not to do what's in their best interest. You see, the positive prescription helps us to apply even the prohibition. The prohibition is the negative form. And uh, what many of the uh, Pharisees were doing was focusing upon the prohibition and not the prescription. So Jesus doesn't say their response to all of this, uh, but Jesus uh, responds to this and says that this is the way that it should be. And then it seems as if in the same conversation, Jesus has a challenge. So we have a challenge by the Pharisees, challenge met. We have a challenge by the Sadducees, challenge met. We have a challenge again by the Pharisees, challenge met. And now Jesus has a challenge of his own for them. Look, at, look with me at verse uh, 41 and following. This is, this is the Lord's challenge to them. And it essentially is whose son is the Messiah. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it that then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any question. Isn't that awesome? Jesus' wisdom stumped them all. So here's the, the question, whose son is the Messiah? And the, a part B to that question is, why does David call him Lord? Maybe we don't think in, in terms of this, but um, the difficulty would be that a father is usually considered greater than a son in the Jewish frame of thinking. You think back that it's, it's always going back to the greater and that each son is an iteration but not quite as good. Okay? But this somehow changes all of that because not only is David, Jesus, the son of David, but he's also what? He's the son of God. He's the son of God. This is more than just the, the son of David. He is the son of David, but he's the son of David and more. And so uh, Jesus shows here that he is greater and that David himself acknowledged him as Lord. Okay? So it's, it's a looking forward. It's a prophetic looking forward that we have just read. And so I think the issue that's at stake here is the Messiah is greater than David because he's also the Son of God. And how are you guys going to respond? Not, not you. I'm, I'm certainly we've, we've all understood that question. But the Pharisees that he's talking to, how are you going to respond to this, the fact that the Messiah is a greater than David? Okay. How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to keep on fighting against him? Of course, I don't know that they had bought into the concept of him being Messiah. I think maybe at some point, my understanding of this, some had suspicions about it, but as time went on, either because of group pressure 
or because of jealousies or because of a fear, like Caiaphas, I think it was, that said, it's better that one man die for the nation. I think he was afraid that something bad was going to happen to Israel if they followed this leader. There were probably a multitude of reasons, but but it seems that in time, he, he went through an era of popularity, and then his popularity decreased, and he went through a time of opposition right before his crucifixion. And so there's there's this falling away. And one of them is like the mass falling away that happens when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Remember that? And like it says, after that, many disciples didn't follow after him anymore. And Jesus said to his own disciples, are you going to leave too? And, he's, and Peter says, uh, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I interpret that to mean, Lord, what you said is troublesome, but who else are we going to go to that has what you have? And so a lot of people didn't go out after him after that because they got hung up on a literal interpretation of his words when he meant it in a figurative way. So that's uh, an example of this. So the issue here, will you follow the Messiah? And many of them didn't. But I want to point out here that this is the wisdom of Jesus, is that no one could answer him, and no one wanted to ask any more questions because they knew he was wise. And here's the application I, I think we we come to tonight in all of this. Jesus' wisdom is the same wisdom that he guides us with. And if you want to split hairs about it, you might say, well, it's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that guides us. That's that's true. Um, but it was, if I understand things right, he relied upon the wisdom of the Spirit too. Uh, but no one would doubt that in, in uh, having the wisdom of the Son, you also have the wisdom of the Father and the Spirit. Would you agree? It's one wisdom that's shared, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if you, you know, the Bible says if you have the Son, you'll have the Father. It's a shared wisdom. Let me mention a couple more things about the wisdom of Jesus, and then we'll make a final application and, and go away hopefully a little bit wiser. Um. It tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, that Jesus was filled with wisdom. It says this, Luke 2, you know, is the very beginning of his earthly story. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was with him. And then it says in 12 verses later in 2.52 that he grew in wisdom. Okay, And then uh, in Luke chapter 11, verse 31, Jesus is issuing out rebukes to different people says in that setting, um, the queen of Sheba, uh, the queen of the south, will rise up in judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now someone greater than Solomon is here. Do you hear what he's saying? It, he didn't quite say it exactly this way, but the point is Solomon was wise and people came to hear him. A greater in wisdom Solomon is here, is the point. And many of them were rejecting him. Then we see a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 4, about the spirit of wisdom resting on him. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from uh, his roots a branch will grow fruit. Why, why would it say that? I mean, we're, we're talking Isaiah. It's kind of prophesying something in the middle future just before Jesus is born and then into the time that Jesus comes. Why does it say a shoot has to grow up out of a stump? Anybody think of why that would be? They're going to get cut off. 
the people of God will get, will get cut off to the extent that it almost, it looks like you get near the end of the uh, Chronicles, and you start to wonder if the Messianic promise is going to persevere. I mean, we know better. Do you know what I mean? Like, it looks that way. It looks bad. It looks really tentative and sketchy because you start to see there's still within the line one king gets killed without any descendants. Where's it going to go? And it has to jump to his brother. And, like, it just looks real real sketchy right there. And then it, it's like they go into exile in Babylon, and that lineage has to be maintained through the exile. And then they come back. And there again, we find the lineage of David. Okay, so God kept his promise through dark years and distant years from the land. So a shoot will grow up out of a stump. A stump is a tree that's been cut off. Okay, but the tree's not dead. A little shoot springs up out of the side. And that's, uh, that's the messianic lineage. It looks like it's gone. It's not gone. God preserved it through exile. So it says, a shoot will come up out of the stump of Jesse. Uh, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Okay, we're talking about Jesus here, 700 years before his birth. And the exile hasn't happened yet. So Isaiah is prophesying an exile, but he's also prophesying hope beyond the exile, that God will keep his promise through it. And here's the promise. Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Like he knew what was in the hearts of these guys, didn't he? He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy and justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. So we're seeing that he is the Lord of wisdom. And then I would mention one other verse here before we come into this practical portion, that he is the possessor of the treasures of wisdom. Colossians 2, verse 2 through 3. My goal is, Paul writes to the Colossians, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Christ. Christ is, excuse me, the mystery of God in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what this is showing is Christ is the ultimate storehouse of wisdom. I don't know if you know anything about the Colossian letter, but there's a lot of opinion on it. But if you were to boil all those opinions down, you would find that uh, what stands behind this is that there's a teaching in the Colossian church that Christ is not sufficient in himself, but kind of a step to something else, okay? So the, the secret of wisdom is revealed only to the initiates or the uh, elite, spiritual elite, who seek beyond this temporary lowly Jesus who is manifest in the flesh. That's just stuff of everyday life. We don't want to have anything to do with that. We want what's really spiritual, and so they wanted to reach beyond him and go to the next level. And Paul is saying, no, no. Everything you need in terms of wisdom is found in this Jesus. That's his point. He said, we're not reaching for some Gnostic understanding that takes us beyond that. We're reaching for the Jesus who is revealed in the flesh. That's where the wisdom of God is found. 
And so that's his point, is that we don't need to have all this other stuff. Okay? It's found in him. Now, if that sounds a little non-Trinitarian, I, I suggest, suggest to you again that if you have Jesus, you have the Father, right? right? And you have the Spirit that's all shown. So if he's wise like this, he can confront the different ideas that are out there on the left and on the right. I'm not using political terms. I'm just saying that there are ditches on both sides of the road. Um, he can certainly guide us. Following the lordship of Christ uh, will guide us wisely through the chaos that we have today. And we're not going to figure it all out uh, in this life. I, I've come to terms with that idea. I thought maybe just pursue more and more. But, and, and it's okay to pursue knowledge and wisdom. But we need to understand that at some point we need to know we're resting on his knowledge and wisdom. Okay? His is superior in every way to our knowledge and wisdom, and we can't ever possess it all. One of the things that was fascinating to me is that this happens in every field. You'll notice there's specializations in every field in, in the world. Have you noticed that? Like, think about doctors. You don't just have a, a doctor anymore. You do have a, a doctor, but, but you also have specialists in terms of like an ear, nose, and throat doctor. You've got dermatologists, and you've got people who specialize in battling and dealing with cancer, and you've got doctors who are doctors of feet, right? Feet doc- How come we don't have hand doctors? I don't know. Maybe there are. Are there hand doctors? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, uh, you've got all kinds of different doctors that are out there. I'm not going to go through and name all of those, but, but you can imagine specialization, and this happens in different areas. Imagine it happens in contracting, too. You've got guys who are cement specialists and finish specialists, specialists in all these other areas. And, um, it happens in theology. It used to be that if you knew, if you were a, uh, a doctor of divinity, you kind of had a comprehensive knowledge of all this, and now there's specializations and studies like you have scholars who are scholars on the New Testament, some that are on the Old Testament. Now it's gotten even more specialized. Like you have guys that spend their whole uh, career in biblical studies studying the epistles of Paul or even one letter. And so you're getting specialization, and there's some great fruit that's coming out of focuses like that. But the point that I wanted to make is that there's so much knowledge out there, no one can possess it all. And to me, in some ways, it's like sad if we're trying to pursue that because you can't ever get there. And here's what occurs to me is that I've got a lot of books in my library. And if I read them all, I wouldn't even get close to a drop of what God knows. That interesting? Like, he knows it all. He has all this wisdom. And so the plea tonight is to trust him, not only for his knowledge, and his, but also for his wisdom. I'm not trying to the two. Those are separate things, but they work together, right? wisdom and knowledge. So we're not going to understand every mystery. Paul himself suggests that we won't. And he says, if we have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And he's suggesting that that's really a high aim that probably nobody's going to come to. But even if you could, if you didn't have love, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. And later on, he says, I know in part. Heart, but not all. And so we need to we need to know that we can trust the one who does know. Okay? So we we walk with God in a, a kind of trust that that you don't know everything, but you know the one who does. Okay? 
and we need to know, I think secondly, we need to know that he is the right choice. Of all the options that are out there, Jesus is the right choice. And here's the point I think it boils down to is that, that um, being in Jesus, you have settled the most important issue in your life. Okay, there's a lot of other little things that are out there that we, we may still be working on, okay, trying to come to terms with, trying to figure out. But when it comes to um, the most important issue in life, it's been settled already. You're, you stand in right relationship with God. Your sins have been forgiven. Your eternity is secure in him. You can walk with the God that you were created to know. That's the most important issue, like where you're going to live and who you're going to marry and, you know, how many kids you're going to have and what you're going to do for your occupation. Those things are all secondary compared to that. I think we all agree on that, right? So we've made the right choice in choosing him. So now living in him, your life is directed Godward and uh, directed toward eternity. And living by his word, you're set up with the right principles for wise living. And there are principles, that, or excuse me, there are pitfalls. That they sound right, but they can be taken too far. So don't be fooled by imitation. There was an old commercial that used to say that. Don't be fooled by imitation. And don't be pulled in by the promise of other gods and other saviors. And there are many promises like that. And they extend from everything from uh, promises from government, promises from our secular media that tell us this is what life, the good life looks like, promises from other religions. Like you have a, an aspect of the truth, but you're not quite there. And so read our book, and if you feel this warm feeling, you'll know it's right. And do it. Okay? So I, I just would encourage us that you know you've made the right choice. Hold on to that. Don't be fooled by the imitation. And uh, don't follow after other saviors. And then finally, we need to know that he can give wisdom as well in our situation. If anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God who gives liberally and doesn't upbraid us for asking. He's generous to give wisdom if we're asking with a heart that really wants it. Now, if you're saying, Lord, I want to know the right thing to do, but then once you show me the right thing, I want to choose between which one, (laughs) which of the options. I don't know if I'd expect much from you. But if you're really saying, Lord, I really want to know what you want me to do, man, he's good about giving that wisdom. Amen? Hey, look at that. I don't think I've ever ended right on time. All right, stand with me if you would. Let's thank the Lord for his wisdom. Father, thank you for your wisdom that's given to us, that's um, personalized in Jesus. He is wisdom crying out. And I pray that you help us to turn with all of our hearts to him. We thank you, Lord, that uh, a wiser than Solomon has come. We thank you, Lord, for the wise guide that you've given us in your Holy Spirit that we might know which way to go. Help us to trust in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I took an extra minute. I'll give it back on Sunday. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.